Okay, I should say that we chose a pretty different layout for uh, the podcast since we've listened to your feedback and we oh, found thousands that... thousands of your emails, yeah. Yeah, all your hundreds of emails from all your adoring fans. We found that it's probably best that we stick to a certain few topics and since we have such a large collection of specialists in their own areas um, here, um, <clears throat> or yes. at least people who have expertise that the rest of us don't, it would be interesting to delve into that and talk about that as a separate part of the podcast. So that's what we're going to be doing from now on. We'll be discussing one question that would basically start a discussion and lead to many different areas uh, of conversation and then someone each week will present something from expertise and lead that discussion hello and welcome to speaking from ignorance i'm daniel uh, student at the University of Edinburgh, the best university in Scotland. Get Rex St Andrews. Uh... I don't think that's technically true, is it? What? No. <laughs> Shut up. He said it. Edinburgh's the best. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Sammy. I'm a, a high energy particle physicist at the University of Birmingham. Hi guys. I'm Sid, and I'm a astronomy or astrophysics PhD student at Heidelberg University. Best university in Germany. Wow. other universities in Germany. <laughs> <laughs> the observatory I work at is probably the best one in the state. Hi guys, my, my name is Jack and um, I am a social mobility advocate. I am a professional development coach. I am also the technology and data leader for a small charity. Uh, hello, I am uh, Clemens von Metternich, early 19th century Austrian diplomat and arbiter of Europe. Uh, no, that seriously, that is the name I use when I appear on online pub quizzes, just so you know. Um, I'm, I'm uh, Holmes. Uh, I'm an actor, playwright, um, currently attempting to be a director and editor on a, um, a short film that I've written. I must add, against my will, um, <laughs> which we may go into detail about later in my segment. So my question is... Are the Star Wars prequels actually genius? This is where the fun begins. Oh, of course, yeah. <laughs> Game time started. <laughs> Game time started. Uh, so, in recent years, especially after the release of the sequel trilogy, and especially um, Episode Nine: The Rise of Skywalker, uh, there's been a lot of um, re-evaluation of the prequels. So, my question to you is, are the prequels actually genius? Are they some high art that's been hiding in plain sight this whole time? No. <laughs> well, I was going to say, I think a good place to start might also be to, to like lay down our own experience with the Star Wars franchise, right? And where we stand in general, before diving into the semantics of the prequels. Okay, so we're going to lay, lay our opinions out first. So, I mean, like, like I, 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 I think, like probably all of us, but, you know, I, I watched the prequels as a kid, and when I watched them... When I was eight, I enjoyed them because, you know, lightsaber goes vroom vroom, stabby stabby, droids droids, that sort of stuff. Uh, and then I only watched I only watched the original series uh, a little bit later. And if I'm honest, when I first watched them, I didn't particularly enjoy them either. I think, again, from just being a kid and just being like, you know, man, 
the Empire Strikes Back is the most boringest, you know? So the most boringest one? <laughs> it's the most boringest one. So, yeah, but I mean, obviously, I think now now going back and looking at it, you know, I, I think it's kind of clear that the, the prequels really do suffer a lot. Um, but we'll get more into detail on that later. What do you guys think? Um, yeah, I guess my opinion's pretty similar, although I wouldn't say I disliked the originals when I was a kid. I say I'd like like them all pretty much equally but then as i grew older i realized that uh the prequels had a lot of issues with them and didn't quite hold hold up when compared to the originals when you take the lenses of a nostalgia yeah off at the same time okay well i guess i should state that that i didn't really watch the prequels when they came out nor did i watch them afterwards i think i watched the third one but I did not actually watch the prequels. However, I can't remember, because since I've seen so many of the best scenes, let's say, uh, the ones that are 100% memeable, that I, I honestly can't remember if I have actually seen the prequels, because all I remember are uh, those scenes. I've seen the original trilogy, but I watched it after the prequels. I watched it quite late, actually. I enjoyed it thoroughly um and i'm just not gonna mention the sequels oh yeah i forgot to mention the sequels yeah um i liked the first two and then hated the third one <laughs> <laughs> yeah i have to say for the sequels for me it was a lot more of a case of uh the the force awakens i found incredibly unambitious but didn't hate uh the last jedi i thought was you know, like I thought, hey, at least it's doing something different and interesting, uh, even though I don't like everything about it. Uh, and then the third one was just awful. Oh, God, yeah, it was terrible. Yeah. <laughs> well, I didn't watch it, so... You made the right decision. <laughs> what about you, Jack? I don't actually know if you've seen them. Um, I I figured for, for, for this podcast, it, w- it would be great if we had like a, a range of, of different experiences... Uh, so I, I've only I've only seen two Star Wars films, um, and that's which ones? The Phantom Menace and the 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 Last Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa! What you have seen? That's worse than me. <laughs> wow, that <laughs> two fantastic films. Though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so should we should we dive on in to? What I think might be the best quality of the prequels, uh, which I think Attack of the Clones. Well, <laughs> no, I it think it could I think be a good sequels, film. It's not the sequels really exemplify the best quality of the prequels, which is that at least they are in some capacity marginally different. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the main like defenses of the prequels I've seen yeah. come up, is that they're at least trying to expand the world of expand the universe and the lore of star wars in in the sequels you have three movies and three doomsday scenarios you know like mm-hmm. whereas yes yeah, it's it, not it, just the death star every, yeah. every other movie <laughs> and i mean what do you mean it's completely different Starkiller is not the sick. It's totally different. It destroys five planets at once. Yes, yeah, <laughs> and and you don't you don't know anyone on any of those five planets or have any connection with what they are. So it's very different because you don't feel anything. 
I would argue that the thing about the prequels that is good is what you've said, where they're trying to do something else. But it's also what I think turns a lot of people off them because they're trying to be it's it's the story of Palpatine. It's, the, you know, the cunning political machinations behind the scenes that leads to his rise. But unfortunately, because they're also pitched at children, the political machinations need to be quite simple so that everyone can grasp it. And and that's part of the problem, I think, because it means it's a complex political plot executed in very simplistic terms and with bad dialogue. I mean, they are also extremely flawed. I mean, like, if you actually sit down and analyse Palpatine's plans, you're like, wait, why did he do that? What has he got to gain? Like, nobody... What? <laughs> what has happened? Why did he let himself get captured? Does Grievous know? <laughs> what? <laughs> he, re- he relies so much on happenstance, doesn't he? <laughs> but, you know, the prequels does have everyone's favourite character. I-, I presume when you say it's got everybody's favourite character, you're referring to Dexter Jetster. Dexter yeah. Jetster, of course, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. The most detailed. <laughs> I have character. no idea who any of these characters are. <laughs> <laughs> this oh, this no. entire episode is, is not for me. I don't know if the prequels are genius. I think a lot of people are going back to the prequels simply because they dislike the sequels and then they remember, oh, the prequels weren't that bad. But if you compare, if you, I think if you independently compare all of the films, everyone will have vastly different opinions than what they're expressing. I think it's also partly people, a lot of people who are Star Wars fans grew up with or their first experience of Star Wars was the original trilogy. So they're used to the archetypal battle of good and evil and the bad guys being so much more powerful and ominous and threatening and the plucky good guy winning out. I mean, it's just the classic, well, you know, I'm sure this is well known to huge numbers of our audience that uh, A New Hope is just the classic hero's journey story. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Indeed, yeah. I mean, it's just most fantasy stories that are told. Yeah, it's a very typical fantasy story, but in a like a space setting. And I guess um, the the way Lucas uh, specifically diverted from that um, formula in the prequels, at least somewhat, might be well, some of the reasons why it uh, didn't resonate with people as much. Also, the terrible execution as well. Uh, it's probably the ma- main reason. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I feel like we should address the elephant in the room. I don't think they're very good films. <laughs> An over-reliance on CGI as well, because I think that, that there is nothing that dates a film quicker than relying... But the CG is actually very good for its time. Todd Take, yeah. I only think it's Attack of the Clones that's the one that... Attack of the Clones is the one that dates the worst. In terms yeah, of I, I would agree with that. I think Phantom Menace and Revenge of the Sith hold up pretty well. Phantom Menace uses a surprisingly high number of practical effects. Yes, exactly. Given that it yeah. has a reputation for using lots of CGI, you actually go, no, they built that, that's a model. That's... Yeah, yeah. And actually the CGI they use in the pod race and things like that is good. Yeah, like the pod race looks, looks great. I, I would say a large problem with the CGI is... Just it, it, it's not it's not in the big bombastic way where where one might expect where it's like, man, this whole scene looks bad because everything is CGI. It's just in the fact that like almost every set is a green screen, uh, and like just therefore leads to very uninteresting cinematography and very dull like you know 
just scenes in general. And George Lucas yeah. is not an actor's director from all the interviews I've heard with actors um, talking about working with him. So I imagine... Well, you're, from your own personal experience as well. Right? <laughs> so George I, Lucas is a close personal a close friend. Personal yours, friend yeah. Yeah. As is Steve, Steven Spielberg, or Steve-O, yeah. as I call him. Um, <laughs> uh, no. um, but but I, I just imagine that they're not given a very clear idea on set of what these green balls are that they're talking to. Yeah. And you see it sometimes um, when they're talking to Jar Jar's neck, for example. Yeah. So when they actually filmed that, there's a scene where the guy who's in the Jar Jar suit has like a visor over his eyes. I saw this in a Corridor Crew video, so this is also their analysis on it. But essentially, he's got like, <laughs> he's like where the neck is, but they've got a visor over his eyes so they can't see his eyes. So they just see like the Jar Jar mask's eyes above it. So that the actors are directed to talk to that, but it's still weird because I think it's it wasn't like done that uh, yeah. that frequently before. It's just yeah, I mean, Jar Jar was one of the Jar Jar was one of the fully like, motion captured. Yeah, uh, it was an amazing CGI character. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, for the time, it's very impressive. Like this is before Lord of the Rings and everything. Yeah, I think massive props as well to Ewan McGregor when you consider that he manages to handle that very well and you consider his previous films are all things like um train spotting and various other indie projects with small budgets and minimal special effects and then he goes straight onto this green screen thing speaking of uh ewan mcgregor that's one of the major uh or the major proponents of the prequels will always herald ewan mcgregor's performances one of the best aspects of the prequel. He does definitely stand out uh, from from the majority. I mean, even 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 the people who are good actors in there, like uh, you know, who you've seen in other things, like Samuel L. Jackson, just aren't very interesting in the prequels. Well, well, I think Samuel L. Jackson was horribly miscast. Well, yeah, <laughs> uh, no, no, no. Best, best. <laughs> I want to have that level of confidence, though, where you go into basically the audition and you say, "I want my lightsaber to be purple," and like. I'll only join if my lightsaber is purple. (laughs) There are no purple lightsabers. I want it to be purple. Do you know who they originally wanted in that kind of second to Master Yoda Jedi Master role? No. They wanted Brian Blessed. (laughs) (laughs) But but he was sufficiently self-aware to go, yeah, I don't think I'd make a very good warrior monk type. So he plays Boss Nass instead. imagine the scene... Boss Nass, yeah, exactly. The scene where the Emperor screams and then like flies forwards towards them <laughs> just brian bless it they're just doing his big yell back just <laughs> beating the shit out of oh the oh my emperor. god what could have been <laughs> you can suspend disbelief long enough to re- to like okay samuel l jackson as mace window would lose that fight brian blessed would never lose <laughs> to any of those fights <laughs> he's not going flying out any windows <laughs> Just also, the the scene in Attack of the Clones where Mace Windu just threateningly talks to Dooku. Brian Blessed would never do that. Just, ah! <laughs> just run out and attack. Yeah. <laughs> I think Revenge of the Sith is actually quite good. I was going to say Revenge of the mm. Sith, I think you can sit down the least and watch <laughs> and enjoy on the level of it just not, you know, not being that deep, but at least, you know, is keeping you watching? 
Whereas, like, Attack of the Clones and stuff, uh, uh, and Phantom Menace, have a lot more just dull sections. But, but the whole middle of Revenge of the Sith is pretty similar to the other two, where it's long sections of people talking, sitting yeah. in rooms, it's not very talking. But it's suddenly consequential in Revenge of the Sith. Yeah. You, you go, oh, there's real tension here, finally. <laughs> like, uh, hot take about uh, um, the eighth film. Yeah. Uh, which name I shall not speak, lest we draw a huge amount of controversy. Uh, I do like how it points out how terrible the prequel Jedi were. Yes. Yeah. I like the fact that it also criticizes just the concept of the Jedi Order in general. Not just how terrible they were in the prequels, but just like basically just a super conservative monastic cult that like abducts kids and then, (laughs) you know, prevents them from feeling any emotions. But 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 do you think this was uh, George Lucas's original intention oh, to no. portray the Jedi in that way? No, definitely not. Or has that just been that's just a a reading that's been applied to the prequels post hoc? George Lucas isn't that clever. I think George Lucas's idea of the Jedi is much more the sort of Obi Wan Kenobi Yoda Luke stuff that we see in the original trilogy, and then when you try and do that on a massive scale with a with a fully fledged order and things i don't think it really works yeah because, I agree. because you just go oh there's a thousand jedi that seems a bit sort of it seems to dilute the magic some, somewhat yeah it's no longer a small monastic order <laughs> i mean they literally have influence in the galactic government so like you know, yeah yeah well they're to, like to a quote, political it's like well, it's kind of it's kind of your fault but... yeah to, to quote the incredibles um when everybody's super Nobody is. Nobody is, exactly. Yeah, that's... The Incredibles being that... uh, the best Fantastic Four film to date. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Uh... Yep. Mm. Although, having said and that, there's the best not a lot prequel of film, I will point out, the best prequel film is Backstroke of the West. Yeah, Backstroke <laughs> yes, of the West. <laughs> See, the yeah. Backstroke of the West is actually Backstroke. really interesting. So, it, for anyone who doesn't know, Backstroke of the West is a fan redub of Avenger the Sith using. Uh, poorly translated subtitles as all of the dialogue Uh, and it's actually really interesting because it makes you realize that if you replace all of the dialogue in Revenge of the Sith with poorly translated uh, bootleg subtitles uh, it doesn't make the movie any worse in fact it probably in some cases makes it better Uh, it definitely makes the movie more enjoyable and best part, you get to skip all the boring scenes where they're just talking and instead read the cool subtitles, which make no sense whatsoever. The, the, the dialogue is already terrible, so it's like, you're not losing Might as well replace it, don't need this. And, and, and now all the memeable lines are just explicitly memeable because, you know, like, it's actually constantly ridiculous. Uh, Have you heard the story that reached the man? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not. Think not. It is not a story that the hopeless situation warriors would tell. <laughs> Section ratio, general. <laughs> oh, friend, so you are crazy. <laughs> Your friend, you are crazy. <laughs> my 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 question is, you know, it seems like that there's there's a lot of film companies um, out there who have made really, really bad sequels. Right? Mm-hmm. It, is, is it just the fact that it's really, really difficult to make nine films in a row that are, that are consistently good? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So I, I'd say it's very difficult to make six films that are consistently good in a row. 
And then you can slap on the three if you want. But and we haven't uh, even discussed Disney. the spin-off films. Frankly, frankly, <laughs> I think it's difficult to oh, make yeah. two films that are good in a row. I exactly. mean, Mulan, most Mulan sequels too, right? are bad, even if there's just one. <laughs> Mulan and Mulan 2. <laughs> Well, with the Terminator films, Terminator 1 is a good film, Terminator 2 is better, and all the yeah. rest are steaming piles of there, there's the odd There's the odd gem where the second film takes what the first film does and just only improves on it, but it's very rare. Terminator 2 is a classic example. Kung Fu Panda 2, Empire classic Strikes example. Back. Empire Strikes Back, classic example. To, to generalise it, though, uh, I think the thing is, producing a sequel isn't, isn't just a hard thing to do in uh movies it's just it's hard as as a concept of art because you have to 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 reinterpret an idea you've already done you have to like analyze the themes that you've already had and you have to tell something new but while still adhering to all of what makes the original good Uh, and, and the thing is the reason you never did the sequel story in the original wasn't because you needed, you know, well, it shouldn't be because you needed to set up a whole original movie to do it, because that's how you get movies that are bad. Yeah, it, the reason is because the original story, in theory, is a better story. That's why you picked it, you know. Well, it's a good story. Hmm. Yeah. You're trying, when you make a sequel, obviously, to make it better, but when that's received, it's likely that the things that you added aren't what fans expected. And because you want to tell your own story, that's probably going to come through. And if it doesn't exactly fall in line with uh with the previous story or if it's I think like what you said as well like with um how you have to you have to change things and add things and people like rebel against that i think that's a large reason why people didn't like uh the uh the last jedi uh, i think lest we forget um when when it came out um uh empire was a deeply controversial film really a lot of people yeah. really didn't like it because it had the darker tone, the bad guys won. They went, "What's this bullshit about Darth Vader being Luke's father?" And yeah, and that, that came made... out of nowhere. You know that sort of thing. Yeah, people really and actually, it, people went into uh, Jedi thinking that that might actually have been a lie or a ploy or a manipulation by Darth yeah. Vader. Um, oh. Could you imagine if the reveal in the middle film turned out to be totally fake, fake and, and reversed in the last film? Oh. Man, what a terrible <laughs> choice that would be. When would that ever yes. be a good idea? What's the reveal that they ruined? In The Last Jedi, you see that Rey's parents are no one, and it's, uh, her ancestry is unimportant. And then oh, in, okay, I see, yeah. In, uh, but oh, her ancestry is actually super important. Rise of the Skywalker, it's like, actually, you're a Palpatine, and uh, ancestry is everything. That makes perfect sense. I mean, the, I, I personally disagree with the decision to make her, uh, her family no one, because, I mean, the whole thing about Star Wars, it's a consistent theme throughout it, is that it seems to be about bloodlines and family and all that being incredibly yeah, important. But that's why it was interesting. Yes. I, I, like, I like that part because yeah. Ben Swallow was basically using that <laughs> as, like, fuel, right? <laughs> and her coming to terms with that was what made her an interesting character. Or not come exactly, to terms exactly. with it in, in whatever sense you take. Wow, I never thought I'd hear Sid defend The Last Jedi. Yeah. Well, I, let's, let's be... <laughs> it does have good moments. It's the like... film has its merits. I like to say it's terrible for the meme purposes. Uh, I firmly believe I wasted my time going and watching it, though. Uh, I mean, I think that... I think well, it's a... I, well, I, I don't, I don't think know, it's a bad story. I just think it's not a good story. We all wasted hey. our time after seeing Rise yeah. of Skywalker. Uh, at least... <laughs> But we're getting off topic, and also we should probably wrap this section. Yes, we probably should. Uh, so, final verdict. Are the prequels no. secretly genius? <laughs> no. Yes. No. No. They're not genius. 
No, I have not. no idea. G- I mean, <laughs> that's yeah, Jack, you're the resident expert here. What what do you think about this uh, prequels? We'll use your verdict from our conversation. What 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 do you think? From your analysis alone, mm-hmm. um, from our detailed analysis, what do you analysis. think? Analysis. Oh my god. Yeah, definitely no. I mean. I, I feel like okay, the <laughs> consensus is no, but we've also learned that making sequels is pretty damn hard. Do copyright laws need to be reformed for the internet age? Uh, so okay. this question was uh, prompted by me. Uh, well, I came up with it when I was looking for royalty-free music for our podcast introduction. And I was like, oh, why is there such a big problem with copyright infringement on the internet? You know, like you hear stories every day or there's a youtuber coming out every day saying like oh my channel got taken down by universal music or whatever because i used 2.8 microseconds of uh this one song in this one video in the background uh <laughs> yeah that was already there and so, he didn't even put in or something yeah <laughs> yeah so and there's there's been a lot of debate recently about what is and isn't fair use online and stuff I know that there's a lot of misunderstanding of fair use. Like, I don't think, uh, like, like doing a satire or a parody is only covered under fair use if you actually change the theme and like the ideas. Well, I, th- I think it's important to know what's protected under copyright. Sure. Obviously, this is going to differ between different countries. I looked at mainly the U.S. since that those are the links that always come up, since it's probably where it's most it's loudest. Um, <clears throat> but works in the public domain aren't protected. I think we've addressed that. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, if something becomes like commonplace, like the name, for example, Hoover's, they're not like no longer. Uh, yeah, despite the fact it's a brand sort of name. Or like Dumpster or Kleenex in the US. Dumpster? But, I didn't really? know Dumpster was a brand. Yeah, Dumpster's oh, a brand. Cool. <laughs> or Band Aid. Uh, yeah. Oh, no way. Um, not that we use that. No, we don't. But importantly, yeah. It does not protect the fundamentals of the idea. It protects the expression of the idea. So what's the difference with that? No idea. That's what the link said. So I thought I'd uh, bring it up in conversation to see if we could get to the bottom of it. Yeah, I think what it means with the... It doesn't protect the fundamentals of the idea is the idea is now free. Nobody owns that. But what you do own is how you expressed that idea. Mm. You own your interpretation and how you manifested that into this saying, for example. But you don't own the idea. In music, with classical music, for example, because, of course, Mozart is well within the public domain because it's been hundreds of years, but performances of Mozart are copyrighted because that's artists' interpretation is their own. Yes. Yeah. Uh, someone gave an example of Isaac Newton's equations of physics as something that's no longer copyright. I had no idea they were copyright. I'm surprised that copyright was around so far back that they could have been. Well, copyright was very badly enforced until comparatively recently. Uh, to give an example of how badly copyright used to be enforced, um, the British late 19th century composers of light operetta, Gilbert and Sullivan, lost in today's terms, hundreds of millions of uh, dollars of revenue in the US because copyright laws weren't enforced across the Atlantic. When you, when you say they weren't enforced, what, what do you mean? 
uh, as they in went the same, like they went as in you had to get a separate or? patent in 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 the US. Okay, you you couldn't just rely so they worked on differently. Yes, and there was a there was a whole spate of people sitting there in in and copying out lyrics and copying out music, then sending them off and doing sort of bootleg versions in the US, uh, and also the US because the American dream because of because of uh, <laughs> the 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 power divide between the states and the federal government. It was uh, copyright laws was sort of a, a weird melange of both for a lot of the 19th century, which meant that actually those things were able to sort of survive and thrive, even when they did get their work properly copyrighted um, and patented under the US authorities. It was still an issue for them. And, and they lost probably about $900 million in today's money in terms of revenue. Wow, that's a lot of money. I think there are some, like, for copyright infringement, obviously YouTube is the first thing that comes to mind, since YouTube is plagued with copyright strikes, infringement, demonetization, and there are, like, two really distinct examples that um, I want to talk about. First uh, is the H3H3 Productions lawsuit. That was a while ago. Oh, wow. But more recently is Joe Rogan moving to Spotify end of this year. It's going to become a Spotify exclusive. And uh, as the top comment sent, as the top comment says uh, on that video, all thanks to YouTube's demonetization policy. Let's start off with the H three H three stuff. Are you guys familiar with what that is? No, H three H. So uh, well, yeah, so basically, the copyright infringement claim was that they reacted to a certain video. I'm going to leave all details loose, but essentially on their channel, they reacted to a video by essentially playing part of it and, you know, criticizing it or commenting on it, whatever. And then they were sued based on fair use because uh, the plaintiff said that too much of the original video was used. And since this is a monetized video, essentially what that would mean if too much of it was used is they are stealing the revenue, right? They've stolen that interpretation of the idea and basically portrayed it as their own. The defense was, and what the case proved since H3H3 very handily won, thankfully, uh, was uh, that basically the amount that they used was necessary to like present the case. If they'd, but surely even if they'd lost or had settled outside of court, they, surely they could have come to some kind of royalty agreement or. Uh, but yeah, but but it's also about the point. If that if that had won, then so many channels on YouTube would immediately be plagued by similar copyright notices, and oh, yeah, the platform yeah. would be completely yeah. different. I mean, so much of YouTube's content is just reacting to other things on YouTube. Oh yeah, oh yeah. So I think we're all sort of agreed that if on YouTube, let's say, or any sort of uh, social media platform that involves videos, that if you literally just take someone's video and then you play it and then, you know, don't really offer anything to it, I think that's very clearly something that infringes on their intellectual property. Yeah, yeah exactly. Because you aren't just but, stealing somebody else's content. Yeah, I was going to follow up that with how much of the video it's really all down to on a case-by-case -case basis then since how much of the video do you need to show in order to provide context for a point i'm going to go back to the joe rogan experience for this since as a podcast i'm familiar with other podcasts are available yeah, like this one <laughs> when when something comes up in conversation and uh, jamie has to pull it up 
then you can see on the video that you know they intentionally don't show all of it. Uh, but there's also times when you know they can't hum songs, they can't play certain clips because the video will get demonetized, and obviously it's all been too much. Moon um, spoofy. So um, I have a question about that though. Surely the same rules apply on Spotify as well. Are they just less good at enforcing them? Or well, we're going to find out because Spotify is kind of new to the whole video podcasting thing. Can't watch like. Jorgen's podcast is going to be available on video in Spotify. Oh, okay, weird. I, oh, I didn't okay. even know that was a feature. So this is the first time Spotify is foraying out into YouTube's turf. Also, oh, okay. in in a in a in a parallel vein, in a parallel vein, like I I wonder if Gogglebox have to pay royalties to to, to all of their like TV shows and films, which 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 they oh, show clips. I, I imagine they must do. Gogglebox. Yeah. Well, I think. It's sort of, okay, if, if you weren't on a platform, if I made a video and then Holmes made a video about my video, but used my original video as context for it, he would essentially have to ask me for permission in order to do that. But I feel like being on YouTube, there's enough privacy policy stuff, as well as the terms you agree to, that that's part of the sort of fair use, that there is a certain amount where people can reference your video and talk about it uh but the real question is how much and should that be changed uh now that the internet is so prevalent as to when youtube sort of first became a thing got smartphones now you can steal from that wherever you want whole, i mean uh, research from wherever the, you want yeah the question is should do the copyright laws need to be changed because they clearly aren't working with the or are causing a lot of issues on YouTube. Yeah. And whether or not... I don't know if they're not working. I think they're being exploited. Uh, but also, yeah. it might not be like a malicious thing. It might legitimately be people think that their content is being stolen because it's being portrayed in this way. And since there's such a vast majority of content creators now, nobody can really sit down and, in, and review every single case. It's also to do with enforcement. The thing, the, yeah, there are there are an awful lot of cases, but I think the the stuff I hear people complain about the most isn't like you know someone used you know referred to someone else's like a YouTube video in their video and used a clip of it. It's more stuff like you know someone in the background was singing Happy Birthday, so you know Disney exactly like right. you know completely just blocked the entire channel or something just automatically you know without. Uh, yeah, exactly. I, I yeah. think I think the major problems come from from that sort of thing, where it's like just big companies with a huge amounts of power to just shut things down because, like, you know, it's it's just easy well, for them yeah. to do. From 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 YouTube's perspective, though, like literally lifetimes and lifetimes, like length, I don't know, sizes of of content mm -hmm. is being uploaded every every single day, right? So. Actually, yeah. actually doing that, that that sort of level of due, due diligence is, is is virtually impossible, right? Yeah, no, I know what you mean. It, it, it's it's a monumental task. Yeah, I mean, task. you have to write like the algorithms are written in some sort of way. They they have to have like they're going to be wrong sometimes, right? Yeah. You have to give them that. It's never going to be perfect. Hmm. But the thing is, maybe they're wrong too much of the time. And nothing's being done to fix that. Yeah, I think this begs the the whole going back to copyright begs the real question though: What is fair use on the internet? 
when you put those ideas out there, it's not the same as you writing a book and putting it out. Or uh, is it not? For example, no. It's well. First of all, most people have to buy a book to be able to access that information. If I then take your quotes from the book and publish them as my own, usually I have to reference you or, you know, it's very clearly plagiarism. I can't take your book and then just resell it or strip majority chapters from it and then resell it. On yeah, the sure, internet, if, if I, you have a forum... But, but if I get a book online, just... that's also true, right? Like if I read a paper online, I still can't plagiarize you. That's still... Yeah, but if I if I write a comment on a YouTube video... Yes. And it's my personal opinion. So is that protected? Do you think we need a sort of Harvard referencing system for reaction videos on YouTube? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this all sounds like it really boils down to a, a situation of like customer concentration and power, right? Slash, you know, I guess it, it, it's more of a like supplier concentration and, and power, right? So it's just like idea in business where if you have um a more concentrated customer or like su supplier base uh they, they they have more power right so for example so what do you mean when I, you say concentrated sorry no, so so for example imagine i i produce lamps let's say and the only people yeah. who who buy lamps are like companies like walmart right and like in my right. area, the, the only person who who is going to buy my, my, my lamp from me is walmart right so for example if I want to sell that's my, my highly lamp for like fifty, yeah, yeah, that, that's incredibly okay. concentrated. Okay. Whereas if there's like loads, thousands of, of different shops, then I personally ha have more like selling power, right? So yeah. it sounds like there's a situation where like the 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 two sides are like huge corporations which have loads of power, and then millions and millions of, of small content creators, right? So it sounds like copyright law has been developed back in in, in the day where the, the, the sort of balance between like creator and corporates was like a little bit more fair and both would have like massive legal teams whereas now like the the definition of, of, of a content creator has massively changed and that's why why copyright laws should should be adapted right because of that power shift yeah i mean it's also yeah. why they won't be adapted right because one side is a bunch of you know millions of poor content creators struggling to make ends meet and the other side is you know multi-million dollar companies who are just like, uh, yeah, no, we'll send a thousand lawyers to sort that out. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> well, the question isn't about whether they will be implemented. The question is, do they need to be implemented? And I think following on to what Jack said, since you're talking about customer concentration, YouTube is a huge platform, but should these sorts of copyright laws and things about fair use be platform independent? on the internet yeah. should they be and in any way linked to non-internet media if you can even find stuff like that aside from like books obviously are you saying that the copyright laws on the internet should be different than say, I'm asking. for music it's, or it, it's a very different medium yeah i mean everything travels so much faster on the internet well i think there needs to be a, a, an agreement at a sort of uh, supranational level on copyright uh, to a greater extent than there is because there is already obviously uh, cooperation between you know the various European bodies and uh, the United States and a lot of the, uh, and, most, and most of the world but maybe there needs to be proper 
le legislation at a sort of a, a UN level or a supranational body to actually come to some consensus so that there is a recognised international standard of copyright across the internet because otherwise it, it can't really be enforced because you just go, well, it's, well, it's illegal mean, there, but I'm just going to use a VPN to make it like, I, I was going to say, to be fair, I reckon even if you have the UN step in, it, it's probably still not going to be able to be enforced properly. Well, no, but I'm, but I'm talking about it in an ideal world, because, of course... Oh, so I feel like the UN have more important things yeah. to do. Yeah, exactly. They probably have much more... Like what? What on earth is going on now that's important? So Okay, so the original question was, do copyright laws need to be reformed for the internet? I think the answer right? is... The, yes. I think the answer is yes, but, the, you yes. know, it needs to be done by... We, ha we have no idea how, because we don't know. <laughs> By a professional team of lawyers, not us. <laughs> Moving on to homes. The new section. The new section of the podcast where one of us speaks from unignorance. Spe yes. Speaking from expertise. Well, um, yes, um, <laughs> it goes rather against the grain, I must say. Depends who that is. Uh, I... I would say Holmes is speaking from expertise. Okay, so... Um, just, just for context, I, I recently, um, with the uh, Stephen Sondheim Society, uh, well, I, I was selected to do their student performer of the year thing because uh, I'm in the last year of drama school, so I'm entering the profession. So I'm in that awkward uh, phase between being, between finishing my studies and being uh, a fully fledged professional. So I'm at that stage where I'm a graduate, I'm fully trained, I am professional. And I'm putting out all kinds of uh, self-tapes, which um, for all of you who are not in the industry out there, the self-tape is rapidly uh, replacing the audition as the means of which you do your sort of your first round. Um, and it's basically where you do a, a something filmed yourself, probably in a sort of close to mid shot. Uh, and you just do some dialogue or a side, as they call them in the industry, um, that you will have probably been given about. 24 to 48 hours to learn and record you send that back um and the advantage of the the self-tape over the audition is you can do several takes <laughs> um, um but what, what i'm mainly going to talk about this week uh is this sort of masterclass format and th this sort of artistic um competition uh format so i have been up for most of the major um graduating actor competitions in the uk this year, my success has varied wildly in that um, I was going to go through to the the live um, theatre stages with 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 the Sondheim Award. Um, unfortunately, that was cancelled due to COVID nineteen. So this this masterclass that I will talk about in a bit uh, was in lieu of that. Though they were hopeful that we still will eventually get to perform on stage uh, and do the competition uh, as it has existed in previous years. Um, but the first of, okay, so there are the, the big three, as I think of them, competitions that most drama school graduates want to get involved with are the Carlton Hobbs Award, which is run by the BBC and is a radio drama prize. Uh, and the real upshot of that is not, not just that it's a hugely prestigious award, uh, but it also comes with five months of employment as a member of the BBC Radio Ensemble. And it also gets you into that radio drama and voiceover world, which otherwise is incredibly difficult to break into. And the runners-up uh, generally get employed by the BBC as well. Um, 
Then there is the Wanamaker Festival, which uh, you could argue the, the pool of competition for that is smaller just because all the major drama schools put, put people uh, into the festival, but because it is a festival rather than a, um, a winner-takes-all kind of thing, uh, they're all given sort of equal billing in theory, though it tends to open uh, the globe season um, and it also is reviewed by several of the major um, theatrical publications like The Stage, um, and that can have a significant bearing on your career. And to be honest, being on the Globe stage will um, make you known to people who work at the Globe and make you known to people who work in Shakespeare, which is still a very thriving part of the, the theatrical life in Britain. Um, and so that the, the competition for that is internal. Um, so it's it's a fight between all the people who are graduating in the same year to be part of the the representative pair who are sent to perform at the Globe, and then third and finally the Stephen Sondheim Award, um, I, it works in different ways at different drama schools. Uh, some drama schools will have people audition. Other drama schools will pick people to go and do represent them in the competition. Um, it depends on the number of singers. Often, um, for example. I was picked. I didn't have to audition against other people in my year to do the Sondheim Award. So I think that's been a rather long-winded, rambling explanation. I think I'd like to open it up to the floor uh, for questions or inquiries before I go further and talk about more detailed stuff to do with the competitions and masterclasses themselves. So you mentioned the, like, the big three uh, competitions. Mm -hmm. Now... I assume these are also like like you mentioned they're themed, but how important are these competitions to actually transitioning into a professional career? Could you avoid them completely, or is it something you have to do? They're optional, but do doing well in these competitions will give you a massive leg up okay. in the industry. For example, the Stephen Sondheim Award that I'm still potentially up for uh, has uh, an a thousand pound cash prize and all of the producers in the West End suddenly know who you are and go, he, he won that award. Oh, I want to work with him. And then they, and, and it's often the people who they talk about as Ooh, this emerging uh, talent is uh, premiering for the first time in this West End show. Yeah. It's because they won the Stephen Sondheim award three months ago. <laughs> like, um, so, so how do you rate your chances? How many people are left? Uh, so in the... based on, uh, so the competition has been uh, indefinitely postponed for the moment because the, the first theatre round that we were going to do um, was the week that everything locked down in the UK and they rapidly sent out an email going, look, we're postponing this. We don't know when we're doing this. We still intend to get you all on stage and do the rounds as per usual. Um but we don't know when we're going to do it. And so recently they said, in lieu of this, in case it doesn't happen, uh, or, well, regardless, we're going to do a masterclass format. We'd like you all to submit self-tapes of of, uh, of a Sondheim song of your choice. It can be the song you were going to do, or another if you'd prefer. Um, then send in that footage and send along uh, the sheet music so that we can check things like note accuracy for the, the more pernickety uh, MDs and things, because Sondheim is very technical music, um, which is why the Sondheim Award is so highly thought of. Um, well, one of the many reasons it's so highly thought of, because actually um, 
to explain the way it usually works is various institutions pick a couple of people to send. However they do that is their own affair. Um, then in the first round, everybody sings a, a Sondheim song and it's judged on uh, the technical accuracy, the musicality and the acting. And But there is a slight weight towards the the acting because um, Sondheim is generally regarded as the the actor's composer because he's also his own um, librettist and he tends to write lyrically dense, uh, interesting, um, complex dialogue that he sets to music. Um, and so that's why that's such a highly respected thing. And then the second round, uh, using a different Sondheim song and a song from a new composer that has been composed for you uh, because you've gone into the second round. Um, and they tend to have about six or seven new composers who are writing things. Um, and it's an opportunity for them to show off their craft and see how their craft is interpreted, as well as an opportunity to prove that you can cope with entirely new material. Because, uh, of course, the big advantage of Sondheim is because of its popularity, is there are huge numbers of other recordings out there. So when you're learning, you can listen to how people of the past have interpreted it. But with, obviously, new material, you have to come to it entirely fresh with a new interpretation that nobody's ever had before. Um, and the second round in the, in the Sondheim Award is actually the final round. Very few people make it to that round. Uh, and just to give you an idea of the numbers of people who are even in the first round, uh, in, the, in the masterclass call the other day, there were only 48 of us, and that was including the um, the people who were taking the masterclass. Well, let me ask a Yeah, a no, please, any further questions before I launch into a spiel? So, yeah, so I think, I think like, the your chances in the award are pretty clear, and it seems, like, very competitive. That seems like the main drive. Mm. And you mentioned that winning this, like, I'm, I'm talking specifically about Stephen Sondheim Award now. Winning this prize basically means everyone knows who yes. you are. What about the people who don't win the prize but get far enough? How is it? Is it worth their initial investment? Even the even or... the first round is um, is done in a, a major West End theatre. Um, major industry people come to the first round. So actually, if they see something they like, but you're knocked out in the first round, then you could still be approached. It could still be helpful. Okay. I mean the 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 big networking experience, the big opportunity is is the final, is the prestige that comes with being either a winner or a runner up. There are, and also there are opportunities there to meet your competition essentially and to meet all the other actors because actually they're not all your competition. As much as they're your competition for that prize, once you're out in the industry for for example for example for me, none of the women are my competition once I'm in the industry because I will not be going up for the same parts. The blokes with who, with tenor voices are not my competition because I'm a baritone. Okay, so this is like an industry-wide level, like Britain's Got Talent. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but it actually judges talent. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's, it's... Are you sure you want to use Britain's Got Talent for that metric? So I am drawing a parallel here uh, very loosely to sort of scientific conferences. Obviously, we're not going for prizes, and that's not like the main purpose of this prize is that. But since you can also meet your competition and potential collaborators at well, yeah, because exactly they are also my potential well. collaborators, as as you say. 
Yeah. So, but have you had that sort of experience yet? Um, yes, uh, on a, on a, to a lesser extent, um, in that I, uh, because the actual uh, first phase of this competition, as it would have happened live, uh, was cancelled. I didn't have that, but I have been at auditions where I've met my my uh, quote unquote competition uh, slash collaborators, and I have been. Um, well, I and mean, we did also do this uh, masterclass via Zoom, where because we all joined about ten minutes early, there was a brief period of time where we went, "Oh, hello, where, where do you train?" Uh, that sort of thing, and so we got a rough, um, uh, a very brief period of time to get a handle on who these people were. Though it's it's not the same as it would be in in the live venue because that's a sort of a full day event is the way that's treated. Um, uh, and so you have much more time to uh, to um, I hate the word network uh, because I don't like what networking implies. I, I which is why I never do the sort of um, brown nosy style networking that um, some other actors do. Uh, and that's not to say that I'm leveling a criticism at them. I just don't have the knack. I feel like networking carries a different meaning in uh, research and academia, though. It probably has a huge. <laughs> Given that the it probably has a hugely <laughs> different meaning in other in in other industries, but networking. We don't have to. We don't have to worry about funding in the same way. We still have to worry about funding, but it's not the people who exactly. are. Exactly. <laughs> the people you're brown nosing to are probably. Hey, I, I like your research. I also do this, and I'm nearing the end of my PhD. Wink, wink. Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and actually, that, and it, the. But you would have already established yourself to the, those people. The problem with um, the performing arts is because it is such a, um, it is such a a, pers a deeply personal thing, uh, and when you're performing, your craft is, um, is is very much your own, and it is individual, and you tend to draw on your own life experiences to to create these characters when you're acting or to, to create these performances of, of song. Uh, and, and you are relying on, on your, your instrument, as it were, you, your body and your voice, which is to say your body. Um, and because there's not very much you can do about that, the, the, the line between the professional and the personal is very deeply blurred in... Um, in the industry and it is in the workplace as well actually and it varies from production to production and director to director or set to set i would say actually probably um uh, tv and film sets are the most professional because time is money uh and you just and you don't unless you're working on a very big film you don't do rehearsal um for that you just turn up and you're expected to know the lines you meet the other actors five minutes before you maybe have some coffee with them and then you just go and you better hope to hell that they've had a similar interpretation of the scene to you. Or if they haven't, you go, well, I've just got to roll with it because that's your job. Um, and it's, it's really, it, it's such a, t t TV is, you, you have to be much more, um, what, what everyone always talks about, you know, they talk about it in the industry of being in the moment and, you should always be in the moment when you're acting in, in the sense that you should always be prepared to react in a way that is organic and natural and the way your character would react to something that somebody else does unexpectedly. But it's, it's much more necessary 
and TV than any other medium, just because it, because of that lack of rehearsal time. Whereas on stage, uh, you know, you've always done uh, four weeks of rehearsal, probably on a professional show. Uh, sometimes it's less, but you normally do four or five weeks of rehearsal. Um, and once you've done that, you go, well, yes, it is different every night, but it's different in minute ways, in the minutiae of it. And it's fun to experiment with the way you say a sentence or, or how long a pause is or something like that. But actually, your blocking is largely fixed because it has to be because the, the lighting designer and the, and the crew and all of that are relying upon you being in a certain place at a certain time. And the same is true of, of TV. But the difference is um, TV is interesting because it's both more precise in that respect and far less precise in that your, your blocking on stage is, is rougher than your, your blocking um, for, for TV or for, um, for film because you're dealing with focal lenses of cameras that have been manually adjusted by focus pullers and you have to hit that mark because otherwise you are, you're, you're out of focus and they can't use the shot. Doesn't matter how good your acting was, they can't use the shot. Whereas if you're slightly out of a spotlight on stage or you're slightly to one side in it, you can just move and it's okay. And it's a live experience so nobody cares. Um, but um, the, the, where that differs is the performance for stage is far more rehearsed, whereas the performance for screen is far more reactionary because you're going oh okay that's what they're giving me well that's how i would have reacted if they'd shouted but they haven't shouted so i'm gonna have to react in a, in a different way but I, I feel like you could go on for ages about theaters homes that might be a, a new topic yeah that to might be a, a rabbit down which podcast. we lose ourselves um basically what, what we've talked about what we've talked about the main points are the big three awards your involvement within them how important they are for getting into the acting industry, like the professional industry. Uh, and what am I missing? The big three um, awards for graduates are important as springboards to uh, it, towards sort of instant recognition and success, but they are not the be-all and end-all. Um, yeah, you also mentioned that it's important to get to know your competition. It, yes, it, at that it sort is of stage, important. Your quote-unquote competition. Because as uh, much as anything else... Um, they will be your collaborators at some point and you might as well be friendly with the people that you're going to see in audition after audition after audition after audition until the day you die. Um, <laughs> uh, wow, rather morbid way to end it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Speaking from Ignorance. We've covered the Star Wars prequels, copyright laws and the internet age, kind of, mainly about YouTube demonetization and different awards in the acting uh, world and how they can help you in your career by Henry Holmes. Who hasn't got also any of as... these awards. <laughs> <laughs> Yet. You can find us on Anchor FM, Spotify, SoundCloud, YouTube, and many other podcasting services like Google Podcasts and I don't know, just on the internet space. You guys you guys are 2020 people. You know, you know how to find things if you want to. Where all good podcasts are available. Except iTunes. Except iTunes. <laughs> you can find us on Twitter. 
The handle is at from ignorance. And you can email questions to us at speaking.ignorance at gmail.com if you really want. The question for next week is, what's the most interesting place you've traveled to? Thanks very much for listening. See you guys next week. <laughs>